We've been working through the Gospel of Matthew together. And today, God willing, we want to work through Matthew 14, verse 1 through 12. Let's pray, and then let's read this passage. Father, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you, Lord, for this sweet privilege to get to read it together now. And I pray, God, that just even just simply with the reading of your word, that you would exalt your name, that you would give us hearts to see you and all things glorious about you. Help us to know Christ more intimately. Make us an obedient, worshipful people, Lord. I pray, God, you use your word to do that this morning. Sanctify us and cleanse us through the washing of water of your word. Lord, we know we need your help. Lord, unless you help us, everything that we do is is vanity. Please, God, give us your help. Matthew chapter 14, if you look at it with me, let's start in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, He feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Let's try to begin with a little bit of a description of the different people that are mentioned in this passage of scripture. So just a quick little summary about the people that are mentioned here. So uh, we'll start with Jesus. Number one, Jesus is mentioned here. Son of God, made flesh, the captain of our salvation, 
He's the one in this passage you probably know the most, and yet there's another sense in which he's the one that you probably know the least. Second, we've got Herod the Tetrarch here, which he's also known as Herod Antipas. Now, this is not the same Herod that we read about in Matthew chapter 2 that tried to kill Jesus when he was just an infant. This is actually that Herod's son, Herod Antipas. And this guy said, he said was, he was a tetrarch, it says here, which technically means a ruler of a fourth. He, he was kind of like a king, but he wasn't a real king. He was a, a king over a certain part of Israel, of the Galilee area and the Perea area. So he was a ruler in the land, Herod the tetrarch. Third, we got John the Baptist here. He's been known as uh, or been called the forerunner of Jesus because he is. He's kind of like the king's herald. He's the one going out in front of the king, letting everyone know that the king is coming. He was prophesied about in the Old Testament that not only would the Messiah come, but a forerunner would come first. You can go read Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where it says that John the Baptist, and, and, and he claims this for himself, that he's the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the deserts a highway for our God. He's preparing the way for the Lord. You go read Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. He's the messenger that was sent. He was the one that would come in the power and the spirit of Elijah. He's the forerunner of Christ. Number four, we've got Herodias is mentioned here, which is actually Herod Antipas's sister-in-law okay so this lady Herodias had married his brother Philip so our Herod in our pastors today had a brother named Philip and his wife was this lady Herodias but Herod divorced his wife and this Herodias divorced his brother divorced Philip so that they could be together this is a really wicked situation and John the Baptist actually called this out as wicked this lady is a, is a wicked lady. She's kind of presented as a, as a New Testament Jezebel, leading the king to do these wicked things. And then fifth, we've got Herodias' daughter here. Uh, this is the daughter that Herodias had when she was married to Philip, and now she's still with Herodias. Now, we know from uh, jo Josephus, uh, was a Jewish historian about this time, and we know from his writings that her name was Salome. And by the language that's used here in this passage, the, the, the Greek word that's translated girl here, this is a young girl. We're talking like 12 to 14-year-old girl um, named Salome here. In fact, that same Greek word was used to, to describe uh, Jairus' daughter who was 12 years old. So this is like a, about a 12-year-old girl, which the more you understand the story, you see more and more how wicked of a situation this was. So, plain sense of this passage, I want us to understand it. You can really take it in three parts. Number one, the fame of Jesus. Number two, we see a false confession from Herod. And number three, we see a flashback about John. So just really quick, in verse one, you see the fame of Jesus. Jesus' fame is spreading far and wide. We've been seeing that throughout the Gospels. In verse 2, you see the false confession that Herod gives. Herod, who do you think Jesus is? And Herod says, that's John the Baptist 
risen from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And then number three in verse, verses three through 12, we see this sort of flashback of how Herod murdered John. Herod murdered John the Baptist. And we get a little flashback. So you might wonder, man, uh, Herod seems really paranoid about John the Baptist. He sees what's going on with the powers of Jesus. And he says, oh, no, that's John the Baptist risen from the dead. He seems really paranoid. Why is he so paranoid about John the Baptist? Well, this flashback, flashback here might tell us. He was the one that murdered John the Baptist, and we can learn about that in verse 3 through 12. So let's slow down and dig into each one of these sections. So first we've got the fame of Jesus. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. Jesus now has the attention of the Tetrarch. Now, the preceding passage told us the same thing. If you remember last week, if you look back into, into chapter 13, and we see that Jesus' hometown had caught wind of the fame of Jesus. He's been out doing things, miraculous things, amazing things. People are following him from all over the place, and his hometown hears about it. And of course, as we read last week, they don't welcome him in it. Now, but we see the fame of Jesus. Now, also in the, in the following passage, chapter 14, verse 13 through 21, just kind of glance at that passage, and what do you see there? You see thousands, I mean thousands of people gathered up around Jesus. And this really does show his fame, because in that moment, he's trying to get by himself. He's going off into a solitary place, and people are coming from towns all over the place just to follow him. In fact, there's a verse uh, in, in, in one of the other Gospels, Mark 6.31. It says this about this same, setting, same uh, scenario. Many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. I mean, the fame of Jesus, he's trying to get by himself, and thousands are gathered to where they don't even have leisure to eat. And we knew this would happen. You think about... Um, as we come through Matthew, we, every now and then as we come through Matthew, we get these summary statements about what's to come in the Gospel of Matthew. And let me read to you an example of that. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 23 through 25, it told us that this was going to happen. Listen. And he, speaking about Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread. This is what we were told is going to happen. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. Think about that. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him. From where? Listen to this. From Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan, his fame is spreading everywhere. And we see in our passage today, it's made it to the ears of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, as we read throughout the Gospels, we see Roman, think about this, Roman military leaders are coming to Jesus and asking for help. His fame has spread. We see Pharisees traveling uh, from Jerusalem into Galilee, that long trek into Galilee, just to investigate this man. His fame was real. And his fame was everywhere. Now, 
This fame of Jesus is an aspect of Jesus' ministry, his earthly ministry, that is purposefully noted in the Gospels. In other words, it's not an accident. The, the Gospels are telling us, the Gospel of Matthew is telling us again and again that, that his fame was spreading, his fame was spreading, his fame was spreading. The question is why? What's the big deal with that? Why, is the, why does the Gospel note this, that our Lord was famous in his earthly ministry? Why is it an, why is it, why is it an important aspect of his ministry on earth? And let me see if I can uh, give some reasons for the importance of the fame of Jesus. God desires to convince his people that Jesus is the, the Christ, the son of the living God. He wants to convince his people of this. And the fame of Jesus plays a role in convincing us of all the claims about Christ. He's the Christ. He's the son of the living God. He's the sinless one. He died for sinners. He's risen from the dead. All these glorious claims, the fame of Jesus plays a role in validating that. Yes and amen, that's true. The fame of Jesus plays a role in that. Now, to, to help you see that, let me use a phrase from the apostle Paul. Okay, this is coming from Acts 26, verse 26. That's Acts 26, Verse 26. And what's happening in this passage is Paul is trying to persuade King Agrippa to be a Christian. I mean, he's laying it on thick, man. He's trying to, he's trying to persuade Agrippa to be a Christian. And as he's doing that, he says this in Acts 26, verse 26, which is an appeal to the fame of Jesus. Listen to this verse. For the king... Speaking about Agrippa, the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Now, shortly after that, King Agrippa looks back at Paul, and he says, are you trying to persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul essentially says, yep. I am trying to persuade you to be a Christian, you and everybody else in this room, okay? But what does he appeal to right here? He says, I know you, I know you see these things because none of these things were done in a corner. This wasn't some isolated, the events of Jesus' life were not isolated, isolated events in a corner somewhere. This was a public ministry. This was a famous man with a famous death and a famous resurrection. Now, why does Paul appeal to this? I want you to try to consider this. Consider the claims of Jesus. Perfect man, son of God, Messiah, God made flesh, resurrect. Think about these claims. Now, what if it was all done in a corner? As this phrase, what if it was all done in a, what if it was all done secretly? What if it was all done privately and outside of the scrutiny of the public eye? What if it was all done in that way? Think about that. What if a man claimed to be sinless, perfect in righteousness? What if he claimed that, but he claimed it in a corner? He claimed it in this sort of secret way. Well, no, there would be no one there that could attest to his sinlessness, right? Or what if a man claimed to do miracles, great, mighty miracles, but he did them in a corner somewhere? Where would the eyewitnesses be? 
And what if a man claimed to be resurrected from the dead, but it was all done in a corner? There's no eyewitnesses, no, no public scrutiny, no public eye seeing it. What if it was done in that way? Don't you see this, that for something to be done in a corner, for something to be done secretly, privately, outside of public eye, it, it diminishes the validity of the claims that are being made. The validity of Jesus' claims are undermined by secrecy, by something being done in a corner. There's nobody there to validate it. There's no public scrutiny. But because of the fame of Jesus, we have validation of these claims. The fame of Jesus is very important. His life, his ministry was in the public eye. It was lived under public scrutiny. He was the sinless Savior doing undeniable miracles. And if it was some sort of lie, the public beast would have chewed him up, spit him out, right? Unless it was true, and, and it was true. His death, his resurrection, they were not private events of an unknown man. They were under the public eye. The resurrection was not some backwoods claim. Somebody off by themselves somewhere saying, I actually died and I'm resurrected. It's not like that. It was more like, try to imagine a, a, a famous public official trying to claim that they died and were resurrected. They're under the scrutiny of the public eye. That can be invalidated very easily. Unless it's true. Unless it really happened. Jesus' life was a famous life. His death was a famous death. And his resurrection was undeniable, attested by eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness. His fame made it easy to invalidate what he claimed unless what he claimed was true. And it was true. The fame of Jesus, brothers and sisters, should increase your faith in the validity of his claim. Now, second... The false confession of Herod. And you see that in verse 2. What if you could ask him, Herod, hey Herod, who do you say that Jesus is? Herod, who do you say that Jesus is? What, what's your confession, Herod? And he would say this, look at verse 2. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So who do you say that he is, Herod? Who do you say Jesus is? John the Baptist resurrected. That's how you explain these miracles that he's doing. Now, that, that's a false confession. Now, even though it is a false confession, it does tell you something about Jesus. What does it tell you about Jesus? Man, he was powerful. Powerful. I mean, what kind of powerful must you be for somebody to look at your life and say, that's uh, John the Baptist resurrected? Some kind of powerful. Now, Herod makes a false confession about Jesus here. But I want you to think about uh, uh, the Gospel of Matthew and confessions. All, all of this is leading in a certain direction in the Gospel of Matthew to that mountain peak in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, Matthew 16, where that great confession is made. Do you remember that? Who do men say that I am? And he gives an, they give an answer. Well, who do you say that I am? And what does Peter confess? See, all of this is leading up to that great confession, that Christian confession in Matthew chapter 16. Who do you say that I am? So think about this. Up to this point, 
What has been confessed about Christ? Who does Jesus' family say that he is? Well, they think he's a great guy, but they think he's out of his mind. What about Jesus' hometown? Who do they say that he is? Well, they believe he's, he's powerful and he's wise, but he's just the carpenter's son. He's just the carpenter's son. We saw that in the last passage. Who do the Pharisees say that Jesus is? He's demon-possessed. That's a demonized man. That's how he does all these works. Now, who does Herod say that he is? That's John the Baptist risen from the dead. And where, and where is all this going? Where is it moving to? Matthew 16, verse 13. Jesus says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? Who do they say that I am? They say, well, some say Elijah and some say one of the prophets and some say, some say John the Baptist. Who do you, Matthew 16, 15, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. That great Christian confession. It's all leading up to that. Now, I want to say something to you about the way that you view Jesus. What's your confession? How do you view Jesus? Brothers and sisters, your Christology is of major importance. Your Christology is of major importance. And what I mean by your Christology is your doctrine of Christ. The study of Christ. The study of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And whatever your Christology is, is of massive importance. Just think about what we have here. Your, your Christology needs to be robust. It needs to be gripping. It needs to be full. Think about what we have here. In Herod's, Herod's faulty Christology, he has a Christ that is powerful. That's John the Baptist risen from the dead. It's a power. It's a, it's a Christology that has Christ as powerful, and yet it's not enough. Herod's in hell. It wasn't enough to say that he's powerful. Herod's in hell right now. In Jesus' hometown, think about the previous passage. They thought Jesus was mighty in works and mighty in wisdom. That's their confession. That's their Christology. Jesus, mighty in work, mighty in wisdom, and yet that's not enough. Anybody in that town that didn't repent of their faulty Christology is in hell right now. It wasn't enough to say he was powerful. It wasn't enough to say he was merely, you know, wise and mighty in his It wasn't enough. The Christology was too weak. Some people, the, the verse I just quoted to you, Matthew 16, 13, some people respected Jesus. They respected him as a great prophet, it says, and yet that was not enough. It's not a full and robust Christology. To respect Jesus as merely a great teacher is not enough. Some people might accept you, know, accept you for that or pat you on the back for that. Oh, Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is a great example to follow. They might pat you on the back for that. But that will not make it in the day of judgment. It will leave you hopeless. There are a lot of people that go to hell because they have a half-cocked Christology. And that's what we see here. Now, I want, you, I, want to, I want you to think about that for a minute. How robust, brothers and sisters, is your Christology? Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you, 
What do you know about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you delight in about Jesus? What do you submit to about Christ? What's your, what is your Christology? If you read Matthew, it's a really, really important question. Satan is pleased if you reject him outright and just hate Jesus. Satan's pleased with that. But he's also pleased if you respect Jesus and yet you don't have this full this full view of who he is and what he's like. You just respect him straight to hell. Satan's just as happy with that. So who do you say that Jesus is? Now, before we move on, in uh, 2016, uh, R.C. Sproul, a lot of you know him, a pastor that died in recent years. Um, R.C. Sproul and Ligonier Ministries put together a statement on Christology. And this statement on Christology was called the Word Made Flesh. The reason they said they did it, it's a lot of reasons, but but kind of getting to the point, is they felt warned about the weakness of the Christology of our day. About half-cocked uh, Christology. They felt warned about this stuff. Okay, and, and they felt grieved about the damage that it does when people believe certain things about Jesus, but it's the kind of Christology that respects him and yet and yet it leads to eternal death. And so they wrote out this statement. So I want to read it to you just in closing out this point. I want to read it to you. Now, this is not a final statement on Christology. Just let this be a spark to you. Let it be a spark to cause you to go back and dig deep and know your Savior. Know Christ. Let this be like, like jumper cables to get the car started. Okay? Let me read it to you. We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, makes all things new. Truly God, he became truly man. Two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, crucified, dead, and buried. He rose on the third day. He ascended into heaven and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law atoned for our sin, satisfied God's wrath, and he took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We praise his holy name forever. Amen. May our knowledge and delight and, and submission, submission to Christ and who he truly is, may it increase. May it increase more and more and more. Third point here, third point pulling out of this passage. We see a flashback about John the Baptist in verse 3 through 12. Now just try to get the plain sense of this passage, I want to um, 
I'm going to just read through it again, just kind of here and there, and make a few comments and see if I can help us see the plain sense of this flashback. Remember, remember, remember uh, Herod says he heard about Jesus, the fame of Jesus, and he said, that's John the Baptist risen from the dead. And then in, in verse 3 through 12, we get a flashback of how, how Herod murdered John to maybe help us understand why he's thinking the way he's thinking, okay? So let's look at it. The first thing we see in verse 3 is Herod arrested John. Look at verse 3. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. So he, he arrested him, okay? Now, why did Herod have John arrested? Arrested. It says, for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Well, what do you mean? What's she got to do with it? Well, look at verse, look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. In other words, John called him out. John called out the king. In fact, it says he had been saying that. He just had been saying this over and over again, just calling out this king for his own wickedness. Now, I want you to notice here, this is not just John expressing his disagreement with Herod. You know, polite, you know, politely, we just, you know, agree to disagree. That's not what happened. He takes the king, he takes King Herod, and he puts him right before God's law. He puts Herod in conflict with God's law. He said, this is not lawful for you. This is not lawful what you're doing. You think you rule, but there's a ruler above you. And John the Baptist was clear in telling him that. Now, why didn't Herod just have him murdered right then and there? Why didn't, why didn't Herod just kill him right then and there? Well, it tells us in verse 5. Look at verse 5. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they, they held him to be a prophet. So, so Herod cared a lot about what other people thought. He cared a ton about what he, in fact, he feared what other people thought. They thought he was a prophet, so he wanted to kill him, but he wasn't going to do it because he needed to please these people, and they were all around. So there's John, he's in prison, and then one day, a birthday goes down. Look at verse 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, But when Herod's birthday came, and that wasn't a common thing for Jews to do. Jews didn't celebrate birthdays. That was, a, that was a, um, a Roman thing here. And when his birthday came, it says the daughter of Herodias, remember that's the little girl Salome, danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Now these events, these birthday events, these Roman birthday events, they were just bastions of debauchery horrible stuff and you see it in stuff like this this little girl this 12 to 14 year old little girl dancing this wicked pornographic dance before this king and pleased him this is wicked sick stuff and then he makes a stupid oath he's pleased and he says whatever you want whatever you want i'll give to you more than likely there's drunkenness going on here this is probably the kind of thing Peter was talking about in 1 Peter 4, 3, when he mentioned drinking parties. These people that walk in these drinking parties, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. Drunkenness, sexual morality, wicked, wicked stuff. And this girl, 
She's so young that she has to, when, 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 the, when the question goes out, tell me what you want, whatever you want, I'll get, will you tell me what you want? She's so young, she has to go ask her mom. Mom, what should we ask for? And in verse 8, she asked for something gruesome. Again, just showing you how horribly depraved this whole situation is. Verse 8, what does she ask for? Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. People are eating there. There's platter, you know, platter of food here and there. He said, I, she said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. Gruesome, wicked, depraved stuff. And then we see in verse 9 and 10, John the Baptist is beheaded. Although at this time, time has gone by, Herod actually didn't want to do it. He was, he, for, for some reasons, he actually didn't want to do it. Look at verse 9 and 10. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guest, because of his oaths and, and, because, and his guest, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison and his head was brought on a platter. Think of how horrific this, this verse is right here. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl and she brought it to her mother, a 12 year old little girl carrying a head on a platter to her mama. This is wicked, evil, disgusting stuff. We see John beheaded. Now finally, in verse 12, you see the disciples come get John's body and bury it and then go tell Jesus. Look at it here. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now that would have been a risky thing. For his disciples to go and ask for the, this man's just been beheaded, and it's a very risky thing for them to go identify with John, identify with John's message, and ask for the body, and yet they went and did it. And then it says they went and reported all these things to Jesus. Why'd they go to Jesus? And this is a reminder of everything that John's life pointed to was Christ, Christ, Jesus Christ. That's who he pointed to. And as soon as he's dead, they go bury him, and they report it to Jesus. Now, what can we learn from the life and the death of John the Baptist? What you think about this is like, maybe this is like John's funeral. Maybe I can give a, I'll give a eulogy of John the Baptist here. What lessons can we learn from this man's life? This man, John the Baptist, was a man worth imitating. So what should we imitate? about John's life. And I'll mention three things here. Brothers and sisters, be bold. Be bold. John the Baptist possessed a holy boldness that you read about here. He possessed a rugged boldness. Be bold like John the Baptist. If you go back into Matthew 3, you remember John the Baptist was He's boldly proclaiming the truth out to the multitudes. And then the Pharisees show up to investigate him. And does that intimidate John the Baptist? No. Go read Matthew 3, 7. He says, he looks at him straight in the eye and says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That man was full of holy boldness. And here we see John the Baptist is, is this man, this, man, this man Herod could have him killed. 
This man here, he knows that. This man could have him killed. This man could have him thrown in prison. And is John the Baptist intimidated? And we see very clearly he's not intimidated at all. He said, it's not right for you. It's not right for you to have her. You go read Luke chapter 3, verse 19. It says that he said, it's not right for you to have her. And he told him all the wicked things that he had done. So he identified the king's evil and wickedness, not just even this one thing, but many things. He was not afraid. He's full of holy boldness. And I want you to think about this. This John, John calling out a ruling authority of his day is not the same as us calling out the wickedness of, of our president. It's not the same. See, there's places today on earth to where if you, if you talk bad about the ruler, you know, if, you, if you say something negative like that, or if you, if you rebuke the ruler in this way, in any kind of public way, you could be thrown in prison for years. You could be killed on the spot. That exists today in our world, and that's how it was in John's life. This was a bold thing. He would not be intimidated by men. He stood before God and God alone. John the Baptist was a bold man. Grace Community Church, this holy boldness is your Christian heritage. This is your Christian heritage. Think about the boldness of Jesus Christ our Lord and the way he spoke and the way he wasn't intimidated by those that could harm him. Think about the boldness of John the Baptist. Think about the boldness of the early church standing before governing authorities and they're saying we told you not to spread this message anymore and they say we ought to obey God rather than men think about this boldness think about the boldness of the of the early Christian church and church history men martyred for the faith and burned at the stake preaching the gospel to their last breath that's your Christian heritage this boldness is ours Oftentimes today, I believe, there's a cowardice. And so often this cowardice is covered up by a willingness to use religious jargon that says certain things, but an unwillingness to speak the truth, to speak the truth in love, the truth that might be a hard truth, might be a direct truth, and might be about sin, like John the Baptist. It's not lawful, not lawful for you to have her. Sometimes cowardice is hid underneath an unwillingness to do those things. Brothers and sisters, let's be bold. Bold like John the Baptist. Second takeaway is to expect persecution. We need to expect persecution. When John lived the way he lived and spoke the way he spoke, he was embracing persecution. He was not ignorant. He did not think I'm going to say these things and there's no risk involved. He knew the risk and yet he embraced the persecution. Christian, brothers and sisters, this also is your heritage. Not only to be bold with the truth, but also to embrace persecution, to even expect it. If you walk with the Lord, you will be persecuted. Hear me out on that. God's word. If you walk with the Lord, you will be persecuted. Expect it embrace it in Matthew 11 11 Matthew chapter 11 verse 11 Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest human walking on the planet greatest human on the planet and and what was John's end 
How did it all go down for John? Beheaded for the faith. Jesus was a sinless man. Sinless. No sin to irritate. No sin to be forgiven of. No sin that somebody else, somebody else has to forbear you. He had no sin. And yet how did it go for him? Crucified and hated. What about the apostles? They were ridiculed and beaten and martyred. What was their response? Acts 4.41. They rejoiced. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name. This is your Christian heritage that when we preach the gospel, when we're bold in the faith, we suffer for it. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, listen to the promise, they will suffer persecution. Brothers and sisters, don't try to avoid it, but embrace it. Don't try to avoid it, but embrace it. Don't avoid it. Don't avoid persecution by cowardly living. Don't, don't avoid it by remaining silent when you've got the truth of God in your heart. Don't avoid it by soft-mouthing everything. George Whitfield called them velvet-mouthed preachers. Don't avoid persecution that way. Don't avoid it by being nicer than Jesus. Don't avoid it by trying to fit in with the world. Don't avoid persecution by being a man pleaser. To try, to, try to just contrast uh, uh, John, the ba- John the Baptist and Herod right here. Herod was a man pleaser. At the time when he wanted to kill John, why didn't he? Well, because what all these people think. And in the moment when he didn't want to kill John, why did he do it? Well, because what are these people going to think that heard me give this vow? He's a man pleaser, not John. John didn't give a rip what other people think. He wanted to please his God. Be bold with the truth. Don't avoid it. Expect persecution. Third, and lastly, point away from yourself and to Christ. Live a life that's pointing away from yourself and to Jesus Christ. This is the life that John lived. It's probably the most beautiful thing about John's life and the thing most worthy of imitation. John was content. John was content to let his own glory be buried in the ground. So as as long as he might exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, just bury my glory in the ground, exalt the Lord Jesus A life pointing away from himself and to Christ. This is the life of John. Lord, help us to live the same life. Now, just to give a testimony to that, in the New Testament, if you went through the New Testament and every time you got a little clip of something that John the Baptist said, you actually have his words, his words recorded. If you got those words all in one place, it'd be about 500 words. About 500 words from John the Baptist recorded in the New Testament. Now, anybody who's written a paper, you know, you know if you've written a paper, that's not that many words. It's like, you know, one page, a little one-page report, 500 words. You know, I've probably, this is just an hour time frame here, I've probably spoken 2,000 words, 3,000 words, right? Just, just, 500, just 500 words there, just one side of paper, it's not that much. And, and yet... And I want you to think about this. 
500 words recorded from, about 500 words recorded from John the Baptist. And I want to read a portion of those words that he spoke. Just in closing, I want to read a portion of the words that he spoke. And I want you to notice out of this small sampling of the words that John spoke, notice how, mu how much of those words are pointing away from himself and to Christ. Just notice this as I read these passages to you. John was a Christ exalter. And may we be like him. Just a few phrases. Listen to this. This is from John the Baptist. He who is coming after me is mightier than I. Whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Pointing away from himself and to Christ. Still, another one from John the Baptist. He who is mightier, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. Earlier he said, I can't, I'm not even worthy to carry them. Now he says, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and to untie these shoes. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Another one, pointing away from himself. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Another one. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself do not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Another one from John the Baptist. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Another one from him. I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. One time, John's standing there and Jesus walks by. And again, he says this to his disciples. Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. And it made his disciples go follow him. One day, John's disciples, they were getting a little bit out of whack because more people were following Jesus and less people were following John but it didn't bother John even a little bit listen to what John says he says he must increase but I must decrease he must increase but I must decrease now what I just read to you out of those 500 recorded words of John the Baptist or so is about half of his words just relentlessly pointing to Jesus the Christ, away from himself. He must increase, I must decrease, away from me and to him. May we live the same life. John was content to have his glory buried in the dust so long as Christ was exalted to the highest place. That's my prayer. Lord, help us to live the same life. Father, thank you so much for your word and for this time meditating on your word. Lord, thank you for sending Christ. 
Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to die for sinners. Thank you for all the the validity of the fame and the eyewitnesses and all those things. Lord, thank you for opening our eyes to the true confession. You are the Christ. Lord Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that so many people around this room, Lord, you have opened our eyes to how great Christ is. And, Lord, I pray that you would increase our knowledge of Christ, Lord, that you would cause us to know Jesus more intimately. Give us a robust and full Christology, Lord. And, God, I pray that you would send us out into the world like you did John the Baptist. Send us out with a holy boldness in our hearts. Send us out, Lord, with a willingness to suffer. From small things, God, like suffering awkwardness to big things like suffering martyrdom, God, I pray that you'd give us open hearts, Lord, just to serve you, come what may. And God, I pray you'd you'd help us that in in our last day, with our last breath, that we'd be able to look back, Lord, and our glory means nothing to us, but your glory means everything. Help us to imitate John. Help us, Lord, to imitate Christ. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.